0: This is the podcast for the journal Neuropsychopharmacology. I'm Cynthia Graber. It's widely understood that early life adversity has an impact on mental illness and cognitive problems later in life. There are theories as to the mechanisms of how this works, but it's difficult to test in humans. Tali Baram is a professor of anatomy, neurobiology, pediatrics, and neurobiology at UC Irvine, and she co-authored a recent study in the journal Neuropsychopharmacology with Ali Marzavi, professor of developmental and cell biology at UC Irvine. Dr. Baram says that imaging studies show changes in brain structure and circuits, and cognitive and emotional tests demonstrate altered function of the same brain circuits. But it's difficult to study the mechanisms to try to understand how this is happening, because scientists can't take samples of brain tissue to determine how and when genes are expressed.
1: There has been a long-term quest to find peripheral markers, whether they are in the blood, in the urine, in the spinal fluid. And the question is, is there a signature of... Changes in gene expression that are also known as epigenetic changes because they're not genetic. The DNA is fixed. This is something that happens on top of the DNA, namely translation of the DNA into RNA and protein. Are there changes that are directly instigated by a type of early life experience and particularly adversity? And do they differ among individuals? And do these changes then predict which individuals have been affected, influenced, impacted by this early life adversity in a manner that will predict their outcome.
0: Those epigenetic changes you're talking about are called methylation, and so you chose to look at buccal swabs, cheek swabs. How did you make the choices you did in your new rodent study to try to understand methylation from early life adversity by looking at cells from these cheek swabs?
1: The idea of getting one sample and comparing it across populations, those that grew up in adversity and those that didn't grow up in adversity, has got Some problems with it. The main one is the huge variability among individuals. Even if you try to get sort of the same cell population, white blood cells or epithelial cells from mouth or whatever, it is a challenge. What we elected to do is to circumvent that or at least uh, eliminate it to a large degree by using an intra individual methylomic approach. That meant that we took a sample before the adversity and from the same individual we took a sample after a very defined period of early life adversity during a sensitive period and we subtracted one from another and looked at the delta so that eliminated pretty much all the most of the variability because we're only looking at the same individual before and after and that allows us to look It's changes that may be related to that.
0: So you modeled early life adversity in rats by limiting the bedding and nesting material for the mothers. This makes the mother stressed and her behavior towards her pups becomes chaotic and unpredictable. And then you took a DNA buckle swab, a cheek swab, from the rats on postnatal days 1 and 10, Ali, you looked at the difference between the limited bedding and nesting, or LBN group, and the control, and you were able to detect methylation. Aside from the normal methylation you'd expect from aging, what did you see?
2: We looked at the genes that had the most methylation changes in the principal component analysis and in the principal components that were involved in differentiating between the LBN and the control, and we found a whole set of genes that are either getting increased methylation or decreased methylation, depending on whether this was about LBN or not.
0: And what's the implications for the brain? Is there any way that these changes you're noticing can be extrapolated to brain health?
1: Absolutely, in two ways. One is uh, genes uh, that were involved in cell death and inflammation They're very, very similar. It's the same genes, really, that are expressed also in the brain and important brain regions, uh, not only in neurons, but in other cell types such as microglia and astrocyte. So if, indeed, these peripheral changes reflect what might be going on in the brain, it will be really quite important. The second more important part, though, is that we are taking this to the human in two ways. One is we're collecting, actually we have collected samples from babies on postnatal day 10, and then we know what happens to them throughout the first year of life, and we collect a second sample at the end of the first year of life. In addition, we will have information about the emotional and cognitive outcome of the babies. So let me backtrack here for the, the rodents. In the rodents, we know that the large majority of those that have the adversity experience will have memory impairments and anhedonia and other issues. So, you know, it's sort of an all in none situation, and in terms of prediction, it doesn't help us very much. We haven't gone into the individual differences. In the humans, we have, in the babies, we have a whole spectrum of different kind of adversities. And not only that, we are now um, checking and examining these babies for cognitive and emotional function after the second sample. So our goal is to tell for the first time whether the intra-individual methylomics, namely the signature um, of methylation changes during the first year of life, really tells you something about the vulnerability of the same individual to mental problems, to cognitive problems in childhood, and hopefully also adolescence. I mean, we're now funded to have the study go for about age six. How many children will be part of the study? We have 256 samples, which means 130 something rather, eight babies. But we, in the rodents, in our pilot study, we were able to get very meaningful results thanks to Ali's amazing analytic capabilities and others from ends of about nine and ten.
2: So we're looking at these regions, which typically are, are enriched near promoters of genes, but they are not exclusive to there. and And so those are the kind of places that we can focus on. And uh, the kind of things that we see is that for any one individual, we see like subsets of these particular DNA methylation regions change. But the overall trend is the one that Talia has been talking about in terms of the genes involved and so on. So even though we're getting, uh, say, a set of uh, genes involved in inflammation and death, they're not necessarily the same one in every individual, which is why the analysis was so difficult to replicate by looking at a set of individuals at just one time point. But the fact that the same categories of genes come up over and over again is the kind of thing that uh, was actually one of the exciting findings from this study. How this is going to extend to humans is going to be really interesting because we expect that we'll see even more diversity, but we're hoping that we'll keep on seeing those genes that are within the same pathways.
0: How could this be useful in clinical care? Would it help in figuring out who's likely to be harmed, or could it prevent harm in the first place?
1: As a child neurologist and developmental neurobiologist, this is, of course, the absolutely key question. So um, first, it is now really impossible to predict at the individual level whether in a child who that has grown up under conditions that we can call adversity and we can define it in many different ways, will develop problems. We know in a sort of broad brushstroke that, quote-unquote, there is a risk, but we really do not know who to target and who even to observe. So the ability to have a tool that will say, okay, looks like the year of adversity here has impacted that individual, Is really critical because the first thing that will happen is the individual will be observed. We are not in the copy center now where we are working, um, you know, really across species with with children and adolescents and now adults. We're not ready to treat yet because we don't really know what we're treating and how. But we are very carefully following these individuals. Uh, Practically, these individuals can be flagged. To school teachers, to parents, just say, hey, let's keep an eye on this individual. Um, And, you know, our prediction may be wrong. They will do just fine. But at least we have a tool that will identify potential problems. Um, In parallel with this, I mean, the test that we are talking about now, the inter-individual methylomics, is really only a marker, maybe even a biomarker, but I don't know that, but at least a predictive marker. Biomarker typically means that we have an understanding of the mechanism. I don't think we can quite reverse epigenetics right now in humans. But in parallel to that, we are looking at uh, in vivo, I mean, MRI and other types of images, as well as batteries of psychological and cognitive and actually psychiatric tests. So what our intent is, is to put that particular study in context and you know, have it an integral part of a much broader approach that will then allow us to get a sense of who is at risk, what kind of risk, what are the mechanisms, and then what can we do to intervene or prevent. Uh, This is clearly a first step, but we're pretty ambitious in terms of getting to the bottom in many, many different dimensions and level of analysis of what early life adversity does to the brain. This is
0: the podcast for the journal Neuropsychopharmacology. To read the article discussed in the podcast, go to www.nature.com. I'm Cynthia Graber.